This is Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and Jay Craig Williams, America's top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, both of them, one from California, one from Massachusetts. You can only guess what will happen next. Coast to Coast is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Coast to Coast on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi in Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams in Southern California here at the 79th Annual California State Bar Convention in Monterey. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. And I write a blog called Law Sites and another one called Media Law. Well, it's October, and it's that time of uh, year again where uh, baseball fans all over the world start to smell hot dogs and eat Cracker Jacks. It's the baseball playoff time. Well, Bob, baseball's not only America's favorite pastime, but a favorite amongst two of our guests today. They have written a book about the truth of baseball entitled The Baseball Encyclopedia, a highly opinionated myth-busting guide to the great American game. And today we're going to talk to them about their role as authors, diehard baseball enthusiasts, and attorneys. And they will shatter a few myths that uh, many fans have come to believe over the years. Well, our guests today are the co-authors of the book, The Baseball and Encyclopedia, as I mentioned. And they are also uh, attorneys, as you mentioned, Bob, on the opposite sides of the coast. I guess that sounds familiar to both of us. With us today is Michael Kuhn. Michael is a partner at Epstein Becker and Green in Los Angeles, practicing labor and employment law, including class actions. He's the author of four novels, including You Poor Monster, which was a Pulitzer Prize nominee. His short story collection, Corrections to My Memoirs, will be published in January 2007. The Baseball Encyclopedia, co-written with Howard Bloom, was his first nonfiction book. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you for having me. And also joining us today is uh, is that co-author, Howard M. Bloom. Howard is a partner in the Boston office of Jackson Lewis LLP, uh, where he represents management in employment, labor, benefits, and immigration law and related litigation. Uh, the Baseball Encyclopedia is Howard's first book and uh, when it was released in February 2006. And welcome to the show, Howard. Well, great to be with you today. Well, tell us about the book. Are there any uh, juicy little tidbits you can share with us from the book? You know, the the, the book, uh, this is Mike, uh, the book uh, kind of came to us um, over a number of years. Howard and I used to work together at the same firm, even though we were on different coasts, and we uh, would frequently just swap uh, meaningless, silly baseball-related emails uh, throughout the day. And... Uh, uh, silly things like one of us would be talking about uh, uh, about Theo Epstein, which would lead to a discussion of Juan Epstein from Welcome Back, Cotter, which would lead to a a discussion of Gabe Kaplan from Welcome Back, Cotter, which would lead to a discussion of Gabe Kapler, and uh, just a silly stream of consciousness things from time to time that would uh, make uh, make the day a little bit more enjoyable. And finally, we just sat down at one point in time and said, you know, we've been amusing ourselves doing this for five years. What do you say we sit down and try to write a book and see if anybody else is amused? And uh, I'd, I'd like to think a few people have been amused by it. You know, uh, th- this is Howard. Uh, Mike Mike knew that I always wanted to. I'd always wanted to write a book, and so when uh, when he uh, mentioned this to me, um, 
if you can measure reactions in milliseconds, uh, that's how long it took me to say, uh, yeah, I think I'll do that. Well, as I understand, you guys didn't actually co-author this. You, you've each uh, authored uh, snippets, and, and each entry in the book uh, bears your initials to say which which ones uh, you uh, you authored. And you don't always agree uh, on everything in this book. Uh, what are, what are some of the issues on which you uh, are at odds in in terms of the? Well, Mike, can I can I take uh, take that to begin with? Absolutely, and I know what you're going to say, but go ahead. <laughs> you know, Mike actually thinks that Cal Ripken is a great player and deserving of induction into the Hall of Fame. And up until the point Mike expressed that to me, I thought he was a very intelligent guy. And uh, <laughs> no, But Mike is insistent, and when he and I were putting the finishing touches on this book, we had a real... Uh, uh, almost vicious debate about it, and that vicious debate made its way into the book. I mean, you know, Mike is very much enamored about the fact that, you know, Cal Ripken played in a lot of games, and, you know, my response is, a lot of games in a row, my response is, yeah, and he dragged his team down in half of them. Um, and Mike has some other thoughts on it, but he's never going to change my mind. I'm not a Cal Ripken fan. And I have to tell you something. If you go on Amazon, you'll see that our book has a higher rating than Cal Ripken's book. So there's proof right there. <laughs> Mike, it's time to jump in here and defend yourself. You, you, get, you get equal time on this, Mike. Our book has a higher rating than Lou Gehrig's book, but that doesn't mean that Lou Gehrig wasn't a great player. And I, you know, I've had this debate in, uh, with a number of people over the years, and, I, and I've always found it a little bit odd that, that there are people out there that will argue that Cal Ripken wasn't a great player. Part of it, part of my my opinion, is informed by the fact that I actually lived in Baltimore for about ten years, and Ripken was one of those players that if you got to see him play day in day out, you really appreciated him even more than if you just saw him once a month or just read his statistics. Um, I, I think that I put together a pretty compelling argument that Howard was unable to refute in the book that Ripken is at the very, at the very least one of the, one of the top two or three shortstops of all time. The other one that we've had the debate about and that I think a lot of people have the debate about is uh, Nolan Ryan. And I have a number of friends that will argue that Ryan was one of the greatest pitchers of all time. My feeling about him... Uh, just think he was a very good pitcher, and that's not an insult to say someone was a very good pitcher, but he was a very good pitcher who just happened to pitch for a very long time, and as a result accumulated a lot of um, uh, a lot of uh, rather gaudy statistics. But uh, those, those are those are I think those are the, the, the two of the of the areas where we sort of deviated from the uh, standard approach to the book, which was that each of us would just comment on a, uh, on a particular subject. Those are two of the areas where we did, where we had a little bit of back and forth because we uh, we both felt pretty strongly that the other one was wrong. I do have to tell you, though, Mike and I got together in California. Um, I was very nice to go out to California instead of making him come to Boston, and we met to put uh, to finish up the book. And I won the uh, arm wrestle. <laughs> so, what type of myths do you guys bust in the book? Give our readers a little preview, or our listeners a little preview. Well, I'll give I'll give you uh, one of mine, and uh, uh, I think almost every baseball fan, baseball announcer. 
probably baseball manager and general manager believes that a tie goes to the runner. That's how I grew up. And the fact of the matter is that a tie does not go to the runner. In fact, the uh, runner has to beat the ball to the bag. So, indeed, if there even was the ability on the part of an umpire to determine that a tie actually occurred, the runner would be out in a tie. And I cannot tell you how many hateful emails we have gotten over that calling us pompous and unknowledgeable and but you know what? It's not something we made up. It's, uh, there's no rule that says a tie goes to the runner. And, in fact, there's an umpire's page on MLB.com where a very well-known umpire has actually said there's no such thing as a tie, and the umpires have to decide, did the runner beat the ball to the bag? And if he did, he's safe. If he didn't, he's out. Well, I guess by definition, if one has to win, then there can't be a tie. That's correct. That's that's that, that's absolutely right. Well, Howard, if I if I saw this cor- if I saw this correctly in the book, you actually learned that through a a, a seminar. So yeah, you you were giving a seminar in your with your lawyer hat on, and, and that's how you learned that. Really. Well, yeah, you know, uh, because I do uh, I represent management in labor law matters for the most part, and one of my subspecialties is union elections, and in a union election, a tie goes to the employer. And so I always analogized to tie goes to the runner, tie goes to the employer, and there I found out I was wrong. Not about the union election, but about the tie goes to the runner. So you're right. So there is a connection between the book and my profession. Now, what connection do you guys have with baseball other than watching it? Did you play it uh, in school and growing up? Did you want to be a professional baseball player? Well, I, this is Mike. Uh, there are a number of women in Baltimore who are under the mistaken impression that I played minor league baseball for about six or eight years because I, I think I may have told them that. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> for some reason, uh, yeah, for some reason back in my 20s, I thought that was a great pickup line. Uh, no, I don't. Not, neither one of us played professionally. I I I, I topped out back in high school. Um, uh, Howard, I don't remember how far you got, but uh, we both have just been been fans all our lives, and uh, and uh, uh, Red Sox fans in particular. I have not, by the way, given up on a professional baseball career. I was watching TV last night, and was it Julio Franco who? Uh, <laughs> Who, who pinch hit? For, was it for the Mets uh, in the game against the Dodgers uh, last night? And I am a little bit older than him, but not. He's going to be playing when he's my age. So I think uh, I have an opportunity uh, to actually play major league baseball without having played organized baseball beyond little league. Well, you know, being in Boston, uh, we we have uh, a baseball team that's that's managed by a lawyer, and of course, he's a he's kind of a, a coast to coast lawyer because he used to be with the San Diego Padres as well, Larry Lucchino. But uh, are there 
are there lawyers uh, who play baseball? Are there baseball players who who are lawyers? Is there is there any link here other than uh, being fans? Well, we know Tony. I mean, Tony Larusa. Did he play? Did he actually play Major League Baseball? Because he's a lawyer. Um, I don't know. Have you ever heard any of these guys interviewed? I I I tend to doubt that any of them are lawyers, but. Uh, well, there are a few clubhouse lawyers. You always hear about them, but yes. I, I, I'm not aware of anyone other than Larusa. And I don't—I'm not sure Larusa ever made it to the majors. I'm not aware of anyone other than Larusa who actually was also a lawyer. Well, let's take it the other way around. Is you're writing this book and uh, your interest in baseball an escape from the world of law? Well, I'll—I'll—you I'll, uh, know, Mike. Mike is a novelist, and 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 as we indicated, Pulitzer Prize nominated novelist, and I'll certainly let him speak for himself. But for me, it was a wonderful diversion um, because <clears throat> I love practicing law. I love practicing labor law. There's a lot of exciting things that occur on a day-to-day basis in my practice, but but I think everybody needs a diversion. I'd always wanted to write a book, and so being able to do this and then have it published and then see people, you know, and read people liking it and professional reviewers saying nice things about it, really, it may have even made me a better lawyer because, you know, there can be some burnout, but if you're doing something else, the oper- you know, the, the possibility of burnout Lessons, and I really, I really think that uh, it made it easy and makes it easier to approach the practice of law on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, you know, it's funny. There, there used to be these studies, and perhaps there still are these studies. But I, I have a distinct recollection of some studies about a decade or so ago, where they would uh, uh, they would ask different prof- uh, professions uh, just how satisfied they were in their jobs. And it was uncanny that year in and year out, uh, the uh, the people that would be most unhappy in their work would always be dentists and lawyers. And there'd always be a little pie chart, you know, showing the different professions. But it was always dentists and lawyers. And uh, my experience has been also with lawyers, both that I uh, uh, went to school with, grew up with, worked with over the years, is that because of the pressures of the job, there there's just uh, there is a a certain amount of um, of of, of uh, dissatisfaction uh, that you might not find in other professions. And my approach to it has always been that I think I and others need to make sure that we find some time each day to do something else, just to take our mind off of it and uh, and and uh, to keep ourselves fresh. I know some people work out fanatically in the gym. Uh, some people. Uh, you know, like to go to the movies. Some people coach their kids' sports teams. Uh, for me, it's always been writing, and so, so, so for this book in particular, I think both Howard and I used it as an opportunity to kind of uh, uh, get away, you know, for half an hour or so a day, and uh, do something that wasn't related to our jobs. And like Howard, I've, I've, you know, I really have found that that doing that keeps me fresh, and I probably end up enjoying practicing law uh, even more than most people do only because I, I, I've got that extra half hour a day when I don't think about it. 
And, you know, Mike talks about a half an hour a day. Mike is a prolific writer. Mike can sit down in an hour and write 2,500 words, whereas me, it would have taken an entire day to write 2,500 words that I really liked. You know, one, I remember one day uh, I was speaking to Mike, and he said, oh, I couldn't sleep last night, so I got up and I wrote 2,500 words, and I wanted to strangle him. Yeah, that's well, a, Mike has written, has written four novels, uh, yes. this book, a, a book of short stories, I believe, as well, and uh, uh, in practicing law full-time. So, yes, he must be a prolific writer. Yes, so when you take a look at the world of baseball in your book, do you peg uh, some of the worst moments in baseball history and some of the best? Not not necessarily no. those types of things. I think what we try to find is is, is uh, in different ways try to find uh, highlight some of the some of the uh, better aspects of baseball and some of the worst or sillier aspects of baseball. One one of the the overriding themes in the book. Um, and, and one of the reasons why Howard and I, I think, just meshed so well in writing it together is we both is that we both shared this this thought, which is that over the past fifteen twenty years or so, baseball has taken on such a um, or or so many people have have spoken about baseball in such uh, uh, in, in the types of tones that you just that a game just doesn't deserve. You hear people talking about baseball being a metaphor for life and how we can understand the human condition if we watch baseball. And, and uh, both Howard and I uh, feel that that's more than a little bit overblown. The reason we like baseball is because it's fun uh, and not because we think we learn anything about ourselves or about, about mankind by watching a ball game. When, when two Dodgers got thrown out at the plate the other day in the game against the Mets, I watched that replay half a dozen times, not because I was trying to to understand what that could possibly tell us about the situation in the Middle East, but because it was funny <laughs> as hell watching two guys get nailed at the plate on the same play. <laughs> that and was pretty amazing. The, the, the book is a book that both uh, dyed-in-the-wool baseball fans and casual baseball fans uh, and maybe even less than casual baseball fans will like. For example, Mike wrote a chapter about the use of baseball knowledge for evil, which talks about uh, kids in his high school cheating on math tests by the use of, uh, by uh, saying out loud uh, for answers the uniform numbers of various players, um, you know that that's a there's a chapter Mike wrote about a guy named uh, Drungo Hayeswood, who uh, what Mike he had four uh, at bats in the major leagues and he didn't get any hits. He may have even struck out all four times, and yet Mike uh, talks about the and it's more a human interest story. Here's a guy who stunk so to speak, yet he is so much better than anybody else, uh, you know, anybody you or I know, because he got to play in the major leagues. There's the chapter about um, take me out to the ball game. Everybody thinks that the first three words to take me out to the ball game are take me out. Well, it's not. The first three words 
are about Katie Casey, a woman who really liked baseball. And then there's obviously some very serious, uh, some more serious, when I say more serious topics, though always dealt with in a humorous and interesting vein. Well, what about the what about myths in baseball? Uh, the myth of the Bambino here in Boston. Uh, do you debunk any of those? We actually uh, did address that. That was one of them. Uh, that's that that is in the book. And um, boy, I want to say, and maybe I'm off a little bit. You know, 15 years or so ago, uh, when uh, when the the curse of the Bambino became uh, started getting more and more attention, people started uh, started believing. That the reason that uh, Babe Ruth was uh, was dealt from the Red Sox to the Yankees was because Harry Frazee, the owner of the Red Sox, was trying to finance a musical called No No Nanette. And you've heard the story repeated so many times that over the past decade, decade and a half, that everybody just assumes it's true. But you do a little research on it, and it certainly doesn't appear to be true because the musical No No Nanette wasn't written until five years after. Babe Ruth was traded, so you'd, you'd have to believe that Harry Frazee was more than a little bit uh, of a. Uh, uh, well, you'd have to think it's so highly unlikely that Harry Frazee would uh, would would do that in the first place. But second of all, logically, how, how do you how do you finance a musical that hasn't even written yet? Um, but also, if you go back to the to the uh, the newspapers of the day. You'll see that that Frazee repeatedly said, and others repeatedly said, the reason we're we're doing this is we want this guy off our ball club. He is he's a, he's a, a pain in the rear end, doesn't show up for ball games, gets in fights with managers, gets in fights with his teammates, and he's just not worth the headache. And uh, that's the position that the, the Frazee family has always taken um, for you know, for uh, nearly a hundred years now. Well, stay with us, Michael and Howard, and our guests. Uh, we're going to take a short break and be back in 30 seconds. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. Coast to Coast is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. 
The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Coast to Coast. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. We want to welcome back Howard Bloom and Michael Kuhn, co-authors of the baseball I'm sorry, encyclopedia. Uh, let me. I wonder if I could ask you guys. Uh, Howard mentioned earlier that uh, he often uses baseball metaphors in his training seminars. Uh, d- does the information, does the knowledge, do the stories you've gotten from writing this book, do you find other ways to use them in your law practice, whether as icebreakers in negotiations or simply as as lessons for yourselves and in, in, in your work? Well, I, I I will tell you that uh, they they they're interesting. A lot of it is an interesting enough story. So particularly when you're meeting a new client, and you uh, you determine that the client is a baseball fan, um, you know it can certainly be an icebreaker uh, to uh, talk about. Uh, Talk about a story, or even you know, uh, 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 um, uh, talk to them about uh, 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 you know. Here's a situation that I uh, that uh, that I experienced, and so yeah, it does uh, it does uh, come into play. And I can certainly tell you that uh, uh, there's been more than one uh, more than one client that uh, you know has. Uh, Perked up a little bit when they found when they find out that uh, you know that in addition to being your uh, you know the everyday lawyer you're also a published author. You know my my experience has been been very similar to that. Uh, clients are clients are people, and they uh, as much as they want us to be on and to be focused all the time, uh, they also want us to be people that they want to spend time with. And uh, I have found that you know, being able to to uh, speak with them about things other than their, their their cases or other than particular issues, particularly when you're traveling with them, is something that they enjoy and helps really foster the uh, uh, the, the, the type of strong relationships that continue over the years. I've also found, you know, not uh, perhaps not surprisingly, is that uh, that often judges end up being. Uh, baseball fans, and they don't mind taking a little bit of break in a in a, uh, a settlement conference or something just to just to shoot the breeze about uh, about what's going on in the world of baseball. Um, in fact, I had a, a case a couple years ago with a uh, a judge here in California whose husband used to be a major league pitcher, and uh, she was um, let's just say our, I, I, I think our relationship took a turn for the better when I. Talked to her about uh, how many times I've had the opportunity to see her, her, her husband pitch um, back, uh, back in Fenway. So it's uh, everybody and everybody in, in, in every walk of life, or, or many people in every walk of life, are baseball fans. It's not different in our profession, and being able to have personal relationships with judges or, or, uh, or clients or even opposing counsel 
because of the shared love of baseball certainly is a good thing. When you were writing your book, what did you find to be some of the more unusual myths that you thought uh, got busted as a consequence of it? And, and I think, Mike, you mentioned earlier that, that well, there's been one particular one that's drawn a number of comments, uh, irate comments from some of your readers. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Is, is that? Are you talking about the tie goes to the runner? Oh, yeah, that, that and other types of uh, myths that you've busted. Mike, do you have any that you wanted to uh, to talk about? Do you want me to talk about? Well, you know, you know, the one that really surprised me was uh, the Baby Ruth candy bar, uh, because we had always heard any time that somebody said that the Baby Ruth candy bar was named after Babe Ruth, somebody would say, "Oh, no, 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 it was named after Grover Cleveland's daughter. It wasn't named after Babe Ruth." You would always hear that. Or if people didn't remember Grover Cleveland, they said it was named after some president's daughter. And uh, so we we did a little bit of research on that and found out that, no, that wasn't true. It was named after Babe Ruth. What happened was back in 1921, when Babe Ruth was at least arguably the most famous person in America, uh, this candy company, the Curtis Candy Company, introduced a new candy bar called the Baby Ruth Bar. Um a couple years later, Babe Ruth decided that he was going to put out his own bar and use his name on it, and the Curtis Company ran into court and actually got an injunction prohibiting Babe Ruth from putting out the Babe Ruth home run bar. At that time, they argued that there'd be too much confusion in the in the, um, uh, in the the marketplace if there were these two candy bars with similar names, and the, baby, uh, the Babe Ruth home run bar went uh, the way of the dinosaur. Their argument in court was that their bar was not named after Babe Ruth, but that it was named after Grover Cleveland's daughter, Ruth. And everybody bought that argument, and the company always uh, uh, presented that argument for decades afterwards. The only problem was that uh, when the candy bar was introduced in 1921, Babe Ruth was the most, again, the most famous man in America. Ruth Cleveland had been dead for 20 years. So I think logically, and we discussed this in the book, logically, it's probably more logical that, that in 1921 they named the uh, candy bar after the most famous man in America rather than after a uh, after someone who had been dead for 20 years. So it sounds like there was some legal maneuvering in the background there. Exactly. An attempt to avoid royalties. Could I mention, could I mention uh, a few of the... Uh, the uh, chapters uh, in answer to your question? Please. Well, I think I mentioned already the one about the the Metrodome um, in uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis, that's always been called the Homer Dome. But in fact, uh, it's probably one of the uh, stadiums where fewer home runs uh, are hit. There's also a chapter, and that was very surprising and surprising to a lot of people who've read the book. Another chapter about, you know, everybody thinks that a baseball team needs a manager, and there's a chapter in the book about the Chicago Cubs of the early 60s that didn't have a manager. They had a rotating group of coaches, and uh, um, so through the year, uh, they would have uh, four coaches run the team at various times. And 
what happened was the team uh, uh, performed terribly. Um, and that was the idea of Phil Wrigley. A uh, chapter about uh, instant replay. Uh, we all know instant replay isn't used in baseball, but there was a circumstance where an umpire named Frank Pulley decided that he was going to go into the dugout of one of the teams and look at the uh, broadcast uh, of the game, of a play that had just occurred, and he saw the instant replay on the TV and reversed his call. And then the, maybe one of the biggest ones is, you, you've probably heard this uh, throughout your life, that a walk is as good as a hit. And this is a, play, this is a situation where Mike and I absolutely agree. A walk is not uh, a walk is not as good as a hit, and Mike's got his reasons, uh, very interesting reasons that uh, um, for the fans certainly uh, a hit is much more exciting because a walk takes the bat right out of the batter's hands, and they ought to abolish the rule that allows a pitcher to throw an intentional walk, and there's no uh, similar circumstance in any other major sport that takes, you know, takes away from the player the ability to do what the player can do with his skill. And certainly it goes without saying that a double is better than a walk uh, in all circumstances. And so, you know, all of those people, particularly Billy Bean, Billy Bean is not a genius. Billy Bean's philosophy is a walk is as good as a hit. Um, and Billy Bean is wrong. A walk is not as good as a hit. Give me a double. Give me a triple. Give me a homer. Give me a single with a man on second any day of the year uh, before a walk. Well, not as good for the fans and not as good for the players. I, I, we're just about out of time, but I, I do have to ask you uh, very quickly, who, who was the greatest bit living baseball? Who was the greatest baseball player ever? Do you agree on that, or is there an agreement on that? Well, Mike, uh, we certainly agree that Joe DiMaggio was not, right, Mike? That's true. That's true. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, it's funny. I mean, it, it, it's such a basic question, and I'm not sure Howard and I have ever discussed it. Um, I, I'd have to say Babe Ruth with uh, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, and Mickey Mantle breathing down his neck. And Ted Williams. And I'm, and I'm purposely not mentioning, uh, mentioning Barry, uh, Barry Bonds in case you thought that was an oversight. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks a lot to each of you. We'd like to give you uh, each an opportunity to just uh, give us any final thoughts, tell us any forthcoming books, and, and let our uh, listeners know how they can find out more about your book and yourself. So, uh, Michael, why don't you start us off? Sure. Well, thank you. Thank you for having us on the show. Um, uh, I, I can be reached through uh, my uh, my website, which is michaelkuhn.com, for anyone who wants to talk about any baseball issues. I'm always happy to respond to questions. And for legal issues, um, Epstein, Becker, and Green, our website is ebglaw.com. Uh, I've got, uh, I think we mentioned before, I've got uh, a few books out right now. I've got a new short story collection called Corrections to My Memoirs coming out in January. And always happy to hear from people if they like the books, didn't like the books. Um, uh, just uh, just uh, enjoy uh, enjoy hearing from people. 
have to say. Thanks, Howard. And uh, if anybody would like to get in touch with me, I'm with Jackson Lewis. Our website is www.jacksonlewis.com, and my email address is bloom, B-L-O-O-M-H, at jacksonlewis.com. And uh, uh be glad to hear from you, uh, whether you like the book or not. Although, as I said so far, uh, just about everybody has really uh, enjoyed it. And this is my first book, and I think Mike and I, uh, Mike and I intend to collaborate on a football book, and uh, we're just talking about another uh, baseball book. Uh, and if people out there are interested in buying the baseball Encyclopedia. Certainly, it's available on uh, Amazon.com, and it's available uh, uh, on online and uh, in the stores at Borders and Barnes and Noble, and uh, your local uh, your local bookstore. And it's in its uh, second printing. Maybe the two of you can tackle the sport of law at some point. Uh, yes. We'd like to thank you very much for being on the program, and uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. We enjoyed it. Craig, I hope you uh, enjoy the California Bar Association seminar and look forward to talking to you next week. Take care, Bob. Nice talking to you, too. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Coast to Coast has been sponsored by Law.com. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Gee Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.